people. Welcome again to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Reynolds, your host here, and I'm here with Stephen Marks. Hi, Stephen. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Uh, we also have a special guest here today. Uh, we are actually on location in Odense, Denmark, and I'm pretty sure I'm not saying the name of the town properly. Odense. No, you didn't say it properly either. Odense. Odense. Ah. Okay. We're in uh, a wonderful city here. We're in uh, a hotel lobby, actually, and we just spent the day meeting a lot of startup companies uh, that are here that are working in the robotic space. And I think what's interesting is a lot of folks have never heard of this town, and they should have, because there is a lot of really world-leading high-tech uh, innovation happening here, uh, and I think people need to understand it. So we're going to meet with someone today. Uh, who is going to be able to guide us through what's happening in Udense. And her name is Nicole Sophie Christensen, and she's got quite an interesting life already. She's been a part of two startup companies. Uh, she's lived in multiple places in the world, and she, from what I can tell, knows everyone in everywhere. So uh, I think it'll be a good thing. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I think if you have lived in Udense, Denmark before, you've probably come across Nicole in some form or fashion. That's right. Do you think that's I, fair? I think it is fair. I think it's a city of 200,000 people. The I second think. biggest in Denmark, I it's think. the second biggest. Uh, well, we third have a local, biggest. Third biggest. We have a local here, and everywhere we go, she says, oh, hello, oh, hello. Yeah, I think they, they had a parade for her before we got here, I think, mm -hmm. they did. In, in town. Yes. Um, but they're still working on the day. I did notice today, somebody told me that Hans Christian Andersen's house is in this town. He was raised here. He was raised here. Yes. Did he write his stories yes. here? He wrote them here? Yes. I, uh, I think um, The Little Mermaid and right. The Ugly Duckling, which I can resonate with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, the, the, those stories, I think it's interesting that we still tell those stories, like Little Mermaid, right? We yeah. still tell them, it, yeah. but we changed them. Do you know that? Are the original ones different? The original ones are different. Than the do Disney you know, movie? Do you know the original stories? I don't I don't think so. I don't want to talk about, give my version of the original stories while I'm in Denmark in it's front of Danish people. It's going to be some people. hot take on like It'll, mermaids or something. No. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be the title of this episode. Hot. No. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. But the point is uh, we're sitting here in Denmark and in a place where when you think of innovation in robotics, you think about Silicon Valley, you think about places like Carnegie Mellon, you think about MIT, you think about all that stuff. And people should be thinking about Udense because there's, we walked down one building today and we tripped over six robotics companies in one, at least six, I think it was. And it's not like they're just um, mom and pop things. These are well-funded, well-connected, I mean, Universal Robotics is from Denmark, right? Uh, also, um, MIR, right, is, is yeah, from here. Yeah, Mobile Industrial Robot. Yeah, they're from here as well, too. So there's, like, well-funded, well-connected, really smart folks. There's a university here, University of Southern Denmark, as well as others that have a very uh, technical focus on robotics. So really interesting uh, thing. So without further ado, you've, I've, I've said too much already uh, about things, but I want to talk with Nicole a little bit. So hello, Nicole. Hello. Um, so what I'd like to get started with is talking a little bit about just who you are and where you came from and what, uh, you know, what it is that brought you into the working into this crazy world of 
robotics uh, and that sort of thing. So you were born in Lindsay or? I'm actually born in a very small city. I think it's like 45 minutes in car from here called Couser. So it's actually the first city you go through when you cross the bridge from here. Cross the bridge on the Great Bridge towards Copenhagen. On oh. towards on the Copenhagen side or on this? You'll be on the Copenhagen side. On the Copenhagen yeah. side, so on the other side. So there's this bridge is takes fifteen minutes to drive across. Yeah, approximately fifteen minutes. It's a and long. And cost bridge. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> You're an Eastsider, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, but I do identify myself as somebody from Fyn. From Fyn, that's yeah. This, so uh, Fyn, yeah, that's this is where Uns is. Is it is it more fun in Fyn? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, without <laughs> offending my uh, my friends back home, it's like Kosur is like the west side of Sealand. That's like the Danish hillbilly side. Oh. Part. Yeah. More like looser. <laughs> don't, don't, don't say that. What are you doing? Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no, We're going to have to cut that out maybe. No, I think. So, so the Danish hillbilly side. So that's. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, a lot of. You know, nice people, of course, but not that many jobs. I think it's where a lot of people who was on, you know, social aid is uh, as well. But okay, okay. still, it was a, I had an amazing childhood. And but it's very normal that everybody moves from there as young, and then yeah. you study in Copenhagen or Odense or or in some foreign country. So you you don't really stay there yeah. if you have plans. <laughs> yeah, I think well, that's some things are true the world over, right? You know, like. I grew up in a very rural area. I would mm-hmm. say rural, maybe hillbilly, maybe redneck, depending on what part of the country you're from. Uh, and then the same same kind of thing, right? You know, you, you have good people, hardworking people, and then you have people who go away to school and then pursue a life in a different place. And it sounds like that's what you did there. So, True. okay. So you went there. And what did you like to do as a kid? I played uh, actually uh, a lot of European handball. I know more or less no Americans know what handball is. So we it's- know. So it's like a can compare it a little bit to soccer, well, uh, but with you your hands, hands and a smaller field. I actually pay, played on a quite high level. I played on what we call first division. So it's the league under the league, which is in TV. And wow. okay. we also won that tournament. And yeah. So okay. like professional, semi-professional. Mm, and- I won't say professional because we didn't get money for it at all but it was on a very high level we had a Mm -hmm. you know a coach we had to run several times a week and you know we had to we were allowed to drink alcohol on the weekend where we had to play you know matches so it was quite serious Uh, yeah and that's the national sport right yeah i think national handball and soccer will be the Mm -hmm. national sports of uh, denmark so i'm sitting in the presence of two athletes because steven sitting here he's a college athlete as well apparently yes he played a sport that just like americans don't understand handball probably danes don't understand baseball as well as what is baseball like out here um i would almost say non-existing um but but there is um it's like a baseball-ish type of game you play a lot as kids or in school um we call it the uh, one ball. And if you ch- translate, it will be round ball, but it doesn't mean anything. But it's still, you have a bat and you mm-hmm. have these four bases, and then you have to get as many, you know, across around the field as possible. 
You so just describe baseball. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but it's, I think, you know, a bit not as boring as American baseball oh. and not as long. What do you mean by that? I know. I know. What you <laughs> Have mean you that. been to a baseball match? It's like I played. Yes, I played them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Stephen was a as a yeah as a <laughs> okay. No. Stephen was a pitcher mm. in baseball. He played for the UT Dallas Comets. Yes, Division Three. Division so you Three. Were in Division One. That was Division Three. Yep. And is Division One or Division Three higher in the U.S.? Oh, Division One is higher. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, Division One is uh, the highest that you can play. Like pretty much before you go play professional, mm -hmm. so yeah. Division One, Division Two, and then Division Three is the smallest. I wasn't yep. very nah. good. I played Division Three. <laughs> yeah. And what's inter good. what's interesting too is um, the person who was the catcher on Stephen's team, right? Or was he the pitcher as well? Uh, he was a pitcher as well. Oh no, we have another engineer. Um, at our company, who also played, they they were both pitchers yes. together. Josiah was better than me, much better than me. Um, yeah, and he was a pitcher for the UT Dallas Comets as well. So yeah. that was our university. Yep. So representing. Yes, yeah, that's good. Okay, so you played handball. Mm -hmm. You're an athlete. Um, you're from kind of a rural area. Came to the city and you study. You went to what school did you go to? So, so I actually first went to Copenhagen Business School, and um, to be honest, I actually didn't want to do it because when you're done with, um, I think it's called primary school mm -hmm. in Denmark, then you have to choose what type of high school you want to go to. And mm -hmm. in Denmark, there's like three types of high schools you can choose. It's like the regular high school, you can choose business high school, and then you can choose the technical high school. And I actually wanted to go to the technical high school because my plan was to actually be a robotics engineer. In the beginning, okay. but at that time, that's like maybe 15 years ago, the, the norm was girls can't be engineers. You oh. have to be in marketing. So even though I wanted to choose the technical school, I actually ended up choosing the business high school and then studied marketing. Mm. And then after that, I went to Copenhagen Business School. It's uh, one of the leading business universities in actually the world, I think. It's a very high profile school to go to. And um, and I actually ended up dropping out after a year because I told my dad and my brother that uh, I was considering joining the military. And then wow. they laughed so hard and said, Nicole, if you join the military, you won't survive more than two weeks. And if there's something you can't tell me, it's like I can't do something. So I actually signed up for the military. You did? The Danish military. Yeah. Wow. And then normally there's a wait time of two years. Uh -huh. So it was like, so my timing was, you know, finish my bachelor, which is three years, do the military and then do my master's. And then when I came to, it's called, I don't know what the English translation is, but I think it's, it's called session in Denmark when you go to this test like mm -hmm. a physical test, a medical test, oh, and they have to, fit, yeah, to yeah. qualify to go. There came a guy and said, hey, you um, come over here. You know, you, we can see you're super fit because you play handball. Do you want to start on the next team, which starts next month? But then you have to drop out of university today. Wait, this, for handball or for military? For the military. You're going to play handball for the military? No, I was going to join the military as like a private. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I decided to uh, drop out of university to uh, go to the military in the north of Jutland, 
city called Aalborg. And my dad didn't talk to me for two months <laughs> after doing that. And yeah, in Denmark, it's only four months. And then when I was done with that, then I started. Uh, then I moved to Odense to um, go to the University of South in Denmark. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're in the Danish army then? Yeah. And so you go to training and then you... You're now, are you still in the army? Or you, no, no. Uh, um, you have to be like uh, in a backup reserve if something happens. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's it's like you can easily just do the four months and then you're out. And then oh, you don't okay. need to do anymore. It's not like you don't, you can, of course, sign a contract for life or go further as to be a sergeant. I was also considering doing that, mm-hmm. but I couldn't really see myself in the military, you know, long term. So I didn't do it. But uh, it's it's quite normal to yeah. do these four months of uh, of military. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. You know, you know, I was in the military as well. Okay, where uh, the United States? Yeah, but where <laughs> the United States? Uh, I started off at this uh, at seventeen. I mm-hmm. graduated high school, and I joined the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, and then I did four years in the Marine Corps, and then I did after that. I took a commission in the Air Force as an officer, and did five years in the Air Force. Cool. So I did a total of nine years uh, in the military as well, but I can say that to somebody in the states. But none of it sounds as cool as being in the Danish army, right? Doesn't it? Doesn't sound as cool. I think. What was it like? I don't was know. it super rigid, super disciplined? Was it tough? Or? It, um, yes, it was. And you know, I have never in my life been so strong as I was there. Uh, I could easily lift myself you know in mm-hmm. these uh, what's it called these pull-ups pull pull ups. and really? you know we uh, carried um you know our bags and weapons and everything like that was like around thing 25 kilos and there's this thing in the military that they sometimes try to make it easier for women mm-hmm. um and i said from day one I will not accept this. Uh, so you have to treat me equal as if I was a man. And then he was like, okay, uh, then you'll, because um, as a group, you have to carry additional weapons. So I got this, I don't know what the name is, but it looks like a bazooka and it's extra 10 kilos. So he was oh. like, this will be your best friend for the next four months and you have to carry it every time we go on wow. training. Wow. So I had to carry 10 kilos more than every, everybody else. He's just yeah, because it was only one person per group who had to carry this bazooka thing, thing, but also others had to carry like these, you know, super old radios that also weighed a lot. So mm-hmm. it was very different what kind of task you had. So I was the bazooka girl. Good for you. Yeah. Bazooka girl. No, wow. but but can you guess what my nickname was in the military? Bazooka girl. No, it was not bazooka girl. Um, yeah, let's see. Your name's Nicole. You usually uh, use your like last Campbell. name. Christensen. Yeah. So your nickname in the military, I don't know what a Danish, how do you make a Danish nickname? It's a, it's an English word. My nickname is Chris. No. Oh, I don't, I don't know. So my nickname was Sniper Christensen because I was Christian. super good at shooting and hitting targets. Oh my okay. God. Really good at it. This and is this incredible. is, this is like the, so unexpected in a good way. Right. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. No. That's really cool. Re- really interesting. So you, you uh, did four months in the army. You go to SDU mm-hmm. from there. Um, tell us about your experience at, at SDU. Yeah, so I studied um, bis- um, business administration and economics. It's like, uh, I think everybody who studies some sort of 
business will always start at this because, mm -hmm. you know, in Denmark, your bachelor is like, uh, you don't really specialize on your bachelor. Everybody will get the same, you know, a good foundation. And then it's on your master's, uh, you will then specialize. And, you know, studying at SDU was really good. I think, you know, comparing SDU to the university in Copenhagen, I think it was more or less the same level. Uh, besides Copenhagen has a, you know, better uh, image, but uh, super fun uh, and uh, a lot of social activities there. We had a lot of good pop crawls and skiing vacations together and stuff like that. And yeah, I would highly recommend studying at SDU because the difference between SDU and studying in Copenhagen is that people here on Fyn are very chill and very, you know, you know, everybody's in the same level and mm. you can easily talk to your professors and, and yeah, I just think it was such an open place and really good. Um, people collaborated a lot to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have any like professors that really stood out for you or that were really helped to guide you in choosing your career or anything? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, I had actually a very good professor in entrepreneurship um and uh, yeah we have we had this everybody had the course entrepreneurship on their first semester and i actually ended up teaching being an instructor in entrepreneurship for all the first semesters wow. after that and i've been i've actually been an instructor in I think six courses now at university you've taught six courses at sdu yeah but it's like when you're an instructor you still have the professor there but then when the students have to do their group work, then you have these instructors to go and help these students. So normally when you start a semester, you will be around ish 200 students. And then we will be the professor and maybe six or eight older students, which is the instructors who will go and help these students with their task or whatever. I see. Oh, oh that's, that's good. So, so six courses or six years that you've been doing that? Uh, I've been doing it for four years, four years. Uh, and I think approximately six courses. Mm. Entrepreneurship business courses. Yeah, I did entrepreneurship. Then I also did entrepreneurship on the on the science faculty. I also did a course within. It's called seminar, but it's about you know people writing uh, and a big assignment on whatever topic. I had everything within entrepreneurship and strategy. And then I also had two um, students who were master students who, who, who had trouble finishing their thesis. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm quite good at writing. Oh, and okay. so I was like a mentor for these students to help them finish their master's degrees, even though I haven't myself written my own thesis. Wow. So, yeah. That's, that's quite a story. So, so you're helping students finish master's degree before you finished your own master's degree. You're like helping other students yeah. graduate before you got yourself graduated. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Kind of. Yeah. But I think it's because, you know, I like being very helpful and, mm -hmm. you know, I would lie if I said I, I'm not good in school. I was quite good in school and, you know, you know, I just like being around people. So it was good fit, you know, being an instructor and, yeah. and helping people in this way. Do you find that um, you learn the material more when you teach it? Or do you find that, that do you learn new things in teaching it to students? Or what do you think? Mm, 
you know, they go through the same literature as I went through. So of course you, you know, I teach, I think entrepreneurship maybe three times, I think. Yeah, I think I had a year uh, semester abroad, so it was only three times. And, you know, the third time, you don't really need to prepare for class. Right, you right. just show up and be like, I know what mm-hmm. we're going to do today. Yeah. So, But it's not because you learn new stuff. Maybe it's just the stuff you learn will just, you will remember it better. Right, I see. Yeah. I see. So it kind of solidifies it in your mind. Well, that's good. So so you finished your bachelor's degree and then you did a master's degree after that? Yeah. So my master is called uh, Management of Innovation Processes. Nobody knows what that means. So I just say it's a master's within innovation and business development, but it is the it is um, the master, I think you can call it the more technical master's without it being a technical master because we did have um, some courses with the, techno- uh, the faculty of engineering mm-hmm. uh, within, for example, project management. I also had big data courses and stuff like that. We also needed to learn how to code in R Okay. Um, yeah. um, and all these things. So my whole profile is, you know, how to be the middleman between sales and the developers. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, I, I don't know how many business school MBA graduates had to learn how to code in R or Python or one of those data science platforms. I don't think it's very common in the States. No, right? not very common, but it makes sense. I mean, if you're getting a master's degree in innovation, how much innovation can be done without knowing some sort of technical skill, right? Like, yeah. it's great yeah. for you because now you can communicate. You kind of have that mindset. Yeah, but it's like, skill. that was like the most technical we did. Yeah. We didn't do any more, so I won't be able to, you know, I can't really tell the engineers what to do. Right. But I do, but I understand what, like, what they do. Yeah. Understanding what somebody, you can't manage someone unless you know, understand what they do. Yeah. I don't think so. Well, that's very good. So then you finish your master's degree Mm -hmm. and then what happened between master's degree and now to get you to what you're doing now? To, I think to better explain how I'm here, where I am right now, I think we need to go two years back. So, um, so I was um, studying, you know, my bachelor's within economics and business development. And I did my last semester in Strasbourg where I was studying at the, um, at a French elite university. And then when I was coming back, I wanted to have a student job. And uh, I, w- I just wrote on my Facebook page, hey, guys, uh, I'm coming back, uh, you know, in January. I'm looking for a student job in something like, you know, strategy entrepreneurship, marketing. I I didn't really care what it was. I just Mm -hmm. wanted a student job to get some more practical experience. And then one of my friends who I know from daycare. Daycare. Yeah, all the way from daycare. You you know everyone. Yeah, because my mom was, uh, she had a daycare and she had him Ah, in daycare with me. And he wrote. Hometown boy, huh? Yes. (laughs) And he wrote, hey, Nicole, we could probably use a person like you. But uh, it's it's is a it is a social media uh, student job, mm-hmm. and I was like, perfect, you know, um, you know. At that time, I had in my mind I will be this, you know, marketing social media manager because that was, you know, what you're taught as you have to be. So I started there um, as a social media student worker, and after two months, 
I really hated it. You know, working with marketing and communication was not for me. Mm. And, you know, you have no idea why a post got a hundred likes versus two likes. It's, and yeah, I just found out that was not for me. And this student job was actually at a venture capital firm in Ulense. Okay. So this venture capital firm invests within tech, robotics, life science, and clean tech. And, and then I was like, Hey, you know, all the other student workers, they were in like student engineers. They are doing all this cool due diligence for these company we might invest in. Can I be a part of that team instead of doing this marketing? And of course their answer was no, because you are not an engineer. Uh. And you know. So just to clarify, so when you mean due diligence, you're talking about the investors are looking to invest in startups and they want to actually check that the company actually is what it says it is and has potential to engage its potential for future growth. Is that right? Yeah. So what happens, the company, a startup comes in, they pitch for us. And then the Judaism is like, you know, check if the, you know, maybe try the product, uh, check what their market opportunity is, look for the budget, maybe talk to some users, you know, actually just doing a diligence about, is this a good investment or not? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wanted to do that instead. Got a no. And now you know my military story. Yes. So what do you think happened? We're not taking that for an answer. Yeah. yeah. So I started getting projects instead of doing marketing. And so now I was doing due diligence and, and I was starting to getting more and more projects within robotics. And I was like, this is so much more me. You know, mm -hmm. I understand it right away what it's about. And the investment managers also wanted me to do their due diligence because now they know what they got because we had to make these reports and you know what I'm good at writing, doing market analysis and making these reports. So it was just a really good place to be. So I worked there for two years and then I got an internship in Silicon Valley in California mm. where I had to, at the same time, write my master thesis about can Ulnsip become the next Silicon Valley within robotics? That's what your thesis you is? You wrote the thesis on that? Yeah. Wow. What'd you say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. So, you know, so I had to, you know, analyze, you know, how Silicon Valley is, talk to all some no robotic firms there, talk to people there, how, what's, what's going on? What is the buzz about Silicon Valley? And then coming with some, recommendations about what Odense could do to become the Silicon Valley. This is, you know, four years ago mm -hmm. now. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you were going around Silicon Valley trying to meet with people to understand, did you ever have people who didn't want to meet with you or did you ever have trouble with it? Um, no, actually not at all. And I think that's one of the really good things about Americans is it's so easy to get in contact with you guys and small talking is really a thing and you know when you say uh, hey i'm making this for my thesis and you know also what i did i was living in san francisco but working in palo alto and at that time there was an app called scoop where you could carpool so these people who are carpooling from san francisco to palo alto they all work in the tech companies around palo alto so it's people from i carpool mostly with people from tesla mm -hmm. or hp or so I was just using them as my sources. Wow. Oh, I see. <laughs> so you're doing real time. You're using an 45 app. minutes commuting to. I just like the uh, the symmetry in it all. You're using an app that was probably developed in Silicon Valley, probably. Scoop, 
to pick you up and to get you networking and getting your data collection for your thesis about Silicon Valley and how Udense can be the next yeah. Silicon Valley. That's kind of a cool cool connection. What are some things that you gathered while talking to these Silicon Valley people? What are some things that you gathered uh, about what made Silicon Valley Silicon Valley? Like, how did it happen? And do you see similar traits in Udense? I think, you know... Maybe three things. I'll try and make it short. I think, you know, people in the U.S. is is uh, not afraid of risk. Mm. And I think probably people in Denmark, we are not used to as much risk because we have this uh, social security net who will always catch you. Mm. Where in the U.S., if you want to make it, you have to really go for it. In Denmark, you can have a super casual, nice life with not as much effort. Because it's just a nice place. Uh, another thing is, you know, access to venture capital. Uh, the VC I work for here in Unse, our biggest check was six million crowns. That's like nine hundred thousand dollars ish. We thought we saw that as a lot of money, mm-hmm. and for nine hundred thousand crowns, we could get like thirty percent of a company. That's a joke in the U.S. Right. You know, yeah. if you want to scale, you know, you have to go plus one million. Uh, dollars. You will never see that kind of money here. Mm. Uh, and you will never scale as fast here. And then a third thing, which I've, you know, you notice on o- your own body, it's it's a bit silly, but, you know, having really nice weather every day, your mood is completely changed. Mm. You know, the sun does something to you. You're more creative. You have more energy to do things. And you can really feel it when you move from Denmark, where we do have seasons. And then when you go to California, it's just nice weather all the time. You're just so much more happier. Yeah. We've got some nice California weather today in Budenstead, don't we, right? Yeah. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> a lot of rain. <laughs> right. It's kind of rainy a little bit. What I would say kind of fall cold, although probably for Denmark, this is not near cold at all. Right? It will be colder. colder. It is cold, but it, it will be colder. Yeah, yeah. So, wow, that's good, man. So, okay. So you write this thesis on how to make say the next Silicon Valley. And then what do you do after that? So after that, I, you know, I, you know, handed in my thesis, I graduated. And so I was looking for a job and uh, because I have been, you know, working in, you know, startups and at this VC firm, I was very lucky that a lot of companies wanted to hire me. So I actually chose to work for a drone company called Lawrence Technology. And it was also one of the drone companies, this venture capital fund I work for also invested in. Mm -hmm. So I knew them a bit beforehand. And the reason why I also, I knew them quite well was because the CEO of Lawrence Technology was also the CEO of a startup called Stove which make uh, smart cooking equipment. So we worked before and then I moved to California and then he started full time in Lawrence. And then he called me and say, Hey, Nicole, I think we should work together again. So I got hired as, as their, I was the first employee, which was not an engineer. So I was the business developer manager, mm-hmm. employee number six, I think. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's good. And then this is the Lorenz that we, we saw today, right? 
Yeah, so Lawrence Technology, they develop um, soft, autonomous software for, you know, flying drones, but also mobile, you know, driving platforms. So it's all about platform agnostic and then using the same interface and the same way of doing, you know, getting data collection in, in the same way mm-hmm. and, and live streaming. That was not a big thing. You couldn't really live stream at that time without, you know, two, three, four, five sec- seconds of latency, mm-hmm. we could do it under, you know, 500 uh, milliseconds. That was a really cool thing at that a time. Big advancement there. Yeah. But now it has changed. Now everybody can more or less do yeah. it. So what, what would you say it was like being at, you've been at two startups, right? In different, they're different and they're, they're the same in ways, but what would you say it's like being employee number six at a startup in Udense? <laughs> um, Chaos in the fun way. Okay. So even though, you know, everybody has this, these, you know, titles, you know, you're the business development manager, you're the CEO, you're the COO, and you're the CTO. In the end of the day, you just divide the task between you. <laughs> you have multiple hats on. It's just who has the time, who has the best ca- capabilities to fulfill this task. So even though, you know, this was my first real full-time job, I didn't feel that at all. It was just, yeah, I think Lawrence was really good, you know, seeing and giving space for talents. Mm -hmm. And it was being a part of a really great family. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. You you like that. Not every startup experience is like that, right? For Mm -hmm. other folks who, at least in the U.S., who are involved in startups, like they're kind of in this environment where, some VCs won't even talk to you unless you've failed two or three times at a, at, at a startup, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And I feel like just being here today and talking with you and talking with some of the folks who are part of the, the robotics community here, I feel like maybe it's a little different here. So, or, do, or is it this similar? I don't know. I think maybe you can say people are a bit more realistic of, you know, especially when you work within hardware, mm things take, you know, I don't know, three times longer than expected, mm-hmm. cost 10 times more. Uh, and a lot of these investors here, they have a background within hardware and robotics and have been a part of it. So they know, you know, it's difficult to scale. And again, it's not normal. Uh, I don't think it's even normal in Europe, you know, getting a hundred dollars investment and then you hire 200 people at once Mm. it's always more you know organic Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. Uh, of course your investment can speed up a lot of your hiring but it's not normal in the same way so it's not normal that somebody would write a check for 10 million dollars and say go hire 200 people in the next year and scale up to hit these kind of things that's not a no you'll see it more for example when universal robots and mia got bought by teradyne for i don't know i think it was almost two billion crowns i think it's more these uh, later stage companies Mm -hmm. who you know get a lot of capital and then they scale a lot you don't you don't really see it on the startup level of course it can happen but it's not the norm like in silicon valley yeah I see. That's a different thing. So one of the other things I noticed walking around meeting people is it seemed like everybody at all these companies knew each other and even were kind of collaborating with each other a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like in Udense? Yeah. So, you know, 
first of all, if you went to university here in Odense, when you get on the other side, it's like your old student buddies uh, yeah, yeah. who's working in all these companies. So, you know, you know them from there. And, and also the way it works here is that in, in Denmark, you don't have, again, you don't have access to these crazy amount of venture capital. So the way you grow is to collaborate with others. And, uh, and that's, that's, just the way it works and you're very you, you you're fine with telling what you're working on and say hey i'm working on this i have these challenges who can help me mm-hmm. and another thing that's really good is that we have this organization called Ulmsu Robotics which is the national cluster and they do several events a month where it's a, it could be a topic like this day we're talking only about outdoor mobile robots. Then you gather all the people working in this area and then they will know each other. So I think it's just because we're really good at matchmaking. We have this yeah. openness, but also this trust that we don't fuck each other yeah. over. That, you don't, that you, everybody's a good player i guess yeah in the in the in the team yeah and especially within drones uh, we said to each other you know all the local drone companies here in Ulens is like let's help each other grow and then later on we can try and kill each other as competitors <laughs> because you know we can't you know all these things are new so you can't create a whole industry by yourself you can't tell these clients like you have to use robots for xyz now because we think it's cool and we understand it they don't understand it so you have to be like thousand people saying the same thing to these end users for them to understand it makes sense for them yeah well that's really good i i think um you know this is a safety podcast loosely safety Mm -hmm. podcast right and we talked about some things today with some folks from uh robotics and then a couple of the other folks too talking about how they're trying to bring about this technological innovation each company has at least one new thing they're trying to do, maybe an application of a technology in a new way or a completely new technology. So they're working on those technical problems. And then one of the things that was also brought up was the business case for making it commercially viable, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where VCs come in. That's where the networks come in and you guys work through all those things. But one of the things that's really important to us and part of why we're called safety third, right? Is the, the third question beyond, is it technically possible? Is it commercially viable? The third question is, is it safe or mm-hmm. is it ethical, right? And I guess I'd like to just hear kind of some of your thoughts about in the startup space, you said everybody does whatever anybody can, right? You're the business development manager, but maybe you're handling some stuff that yeah. is outside of a strict business development manager. Who usually is handling like the safety of robotic systems in a startup? Of course, it varies from startup to startup, but for the companies, you know, I've been working in and also the ones I know really well is that mostly it's just, you know, the brightest engineer gets that hat and Mm. then he just have to, you know, wing it with his left arm hand. I don't know if that's a term you use in the US, no? You just try and wing it, uh, you know, as a side thing to your regular task. Uh, And it's super difficult because... You know, learning about safety and ethics, it's not just something you know, you need to learn it. There's so many rules, there's so many standards. And and I do know some people have it at university, but it's not 
common knowledge and right. you don't sit down and watch two youtube videos and then you're a safety expert there's mm -hmm. it's 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 so unique knowledge so and i think that's why a lot of companies you know develop their products and then when you go to market that, this actually happened with the smart cooking company i work we went to market and then we're like oh we need to see see mark our product it's like hmm and then i was like i can write the manual the user manual. Then I just wrote the user manual, but had no idea what I was doing. Mm. Uh, I hope they have updated it since yeah. that time. But I'm... then we got a C mark, you know, and I think everybody's just trying to survive this process right, without right. really knowing what they're doing because you, at that time, we didn't want to buy consultancies because, uh, consultants because these huge company who does these things, they are so expensive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's really expensive, and it, it sounds like maybe there wasn't a clear roadmap in people's head of this is what you do and how you do it necessarily. So they're kind of trying to find it out yeah. as they're going, right? But yeah. I also think you can say probably there's not a clear roadmap of you know the product itself and the company because it's so normal to pivot yeah. uh, your company. So maybe it's hard to think about these things. Because the first thing you're thinking about is trying to find your product market fit as fast as possible before you run out of money. Right. When you have found that, is found that is like developing your products as quick as possible so you can actually sell it to people. Mm. That is like the two main priorities. Then the whole documentation and the certifications, they come because they're mandatory, but it's not something you think about because they take time and you want to use that time to develop your products even quicker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think especially with a lot of robotic systems and drone systems and other smart type systems, their, their safety is relying on automated systems. Mm -hmm. So the, the safety control logic is essential to it interacting with, a, if you have a collaborative robot, it has to be able to sense what the person is doing, sometimes predict what the person is going to do and then make sure it behaves in a way that is safe and won't harm the person. And so the difficulty with that type of safety is it's not something you can do at the end. It has to be designed in all the way from the very beginning. Uh, and I can see how it's difficult. It's difficult for big Fortune 10 companies, right? It's, it, it's difficult to understand what those requirements are early in the process um, so that you can design them along the whole way because otherwise you get to the end and then you have to kind of redo a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. right? I think when we made our, at Lawrence Technology, when we had to make our, you know, first commercial version, uh, we had externals mm -hmm. uh, to help us say, okay, now we're at a point that we need to make the, the right version help us out. Yeah. I think that process still took a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's these different stories that these small companies have to write your technical story, right? Your technical case, your business case, and then your safety story, too. But like we started the conversation with about Hans Christensen, these stories get rewritten Hans Christian a lot. Anderson. Hans, Hans Christian Anderson. Yeah. These stories get rewritten a lot, right? Where uh -huh. it's like, you'll do a business case. Oh, no, no, no. We don't want to sell to that. We don't want to sell to that group. We want to sell to this other group, right? Mm -hmm. And then the safety case has to restart a lot, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where, oh, yeah. we're not going to get our CE mark with this. We've got to get it with this, right? Which yeah. then it changes the technical story, too. Yeah. Um, and it also depends who your customers are because 
is it a private per- people, is it enterprises, mm-hmm. or is it maybe the military? Mm-hmm. Like, especially within robotics, there's so different requirements depending on which target sector you have. Exactly, exactly. And even if you're geographically as well, we talked with some people today who are starting off in Europe, but then I asked them, well, do you want to go to the U.S.? And they said, well, of course, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we've got to, we've got to go one market at a time, right? But if you know those markets, if you know your plan for world expansion at the mm-hmm. beginning, then you can align those requirements and try to get a good strategy, a good map for what you need to do. And I think, but that's just one more thing to add on to a startup. Yeah. But you, but just think about 90% of the startups don't even get to that yeah, scenario. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So where would you say would be good, a good point to start thinking about safety in the startup innovation world? Hmm. Hard question. I was just, you know, I was thinking if I would be a founder of something, I would, of course, say from the beginning. Yeah. But, you know, do I want to use the extra time and money before I know if this has a good product market fit? I would probably not. I think I will maybe do it when I have found my first test partners. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is, depending on your end user, there's also, they maybe have some safety criteria as well. Yeah. We had a project with um, a very large wind turbine company in Denmark. And besides the, you know, normal, you know, um, uh, requirements within drones, they had additional requirements in drones. Right. We would never know that if we didn't work with them. So mm-hmm. I think I will, you know, I will first think about it when I have found my test partners and after my maybe first version of a beta or something. Right, right. So you, I think that aligns with kind of what we've talk, been talking about. So once you have your first prototype or maybe maybe unit zero, yeah, right? You've 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 got something that works, and it looks pretty much like you want it to look, mm-hmm. and, it, and it and it behaves pretty much how you want it to behave, and then you've now also got people who want to buy it, right? So now the problem that a innovator has that a startup has is now we need to scale, yeah. Because say we're making robots that are going to go into, I don't know, convenience stores or something around the world. How many convenience stores are there in the world? And if every one of them wants a robot. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to scale to making thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these things, right? So is that the right point to say, okay, now we're going to do, going to go from uh, R&D to commercialization. Mm-hmm. So now we need to really start designing in safety. Is that the, is that the Yeah, I think that is also what I have seen with the companies I've been in and also other companies I know in the area is that when you go from the, you know, R&D phase to the first commercial, you know, commercial version one, that's yeah. when you, you, you have to think in these, because if the first, if the commercial version don't fulfill these requirements, then you can more or less not sell it. Right. So if you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. Then the rest doesn't matter. So yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, start as early as possible, but you know, being realistic, I know there's a lot of other things you prioritize before you go into the safety. Yeah. So uh, maybe it maybe early on it's a sticky note on your computer monitor that just says safety at but the very beginning. Right. Maybe like if you look at 
look at it in a bigger picture, maybe it's also because people don't know anything about it. For mm. example, if I started a hardware uh, company today, I know that if I made my business model, you know, maybe something on the wall, I will have a section called safety and certifications because I know this will be a headache down the road. But if you don't know this will be a problem, then it's also hard to plan for it. Right. Mm. So maybe if you started already at university having courses about this, maybe having a joint workshop in the, for example, together with Unsu Robotics doing like a cluster workshop. Yeah. We did that actually within, um, I actually did that with a lawyer company in Odense when uh, GDPR started. Mm -hmm. um, we had so many problems with that with drones because we film everything. <laughs> okay. Well, can, can you maybe explain what GDPR is in 10 seconds? Um, so, G <laughs> <laughs> so GDPR is, you know, um, it's actually just how you uh, respect other people's privacy and how you handle data and make sure that the wrong person don't get that data. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So privacy and data handling, I think I will say. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, this is a regulation in the EU. Right? You have to uh, uh, comply. If you don't do it, you will get massive fines. Mm. And when GDPR came, you know, a lot of us drone companies were like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, yeah. and then I told actually Owens Robotics, this is something we need to, you know, figure out a plan for on a cluster level, because we're not the only companies who have this problem. It's everybody. And I think you could do the same within, you know, your kind of work, having this type of workshop about, you know, how to do it, what to think about already from the design phase. And then say, you know, when you get further, you guys can help out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would, that would be, that would be great. We'd have to kind of be around to help out, right? You'd have to be nearby. That would be a good idea. But again, a lot of things is still going on virtually. Mm -hmm. So you could also do it virtually. We could, we could, that'd be good. Okay. Well, this is really good. I want to close. We've got a, I don't, you know, traditions kind of form when you do things. So I have a traditional question that I'm starting to ask people and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, <laughs> but you've already told us so much about your life. So a question that I like to ask people is what's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? And while you think about that, I'm going to go back to some dangerous things you've already told us, like joining the army and carrying a bazooka around. <laughs> I, I bet that would be pretty dangerous. Uh, I bet handball gets pretty violent. Handball. Yeah. Definitely yeah. super violent, yeah. but not dangerous. Yes. But you're flying drones around. Has that been I think when you say that, I do, you know, if, if we say dangerous in the way where you could actually hurt somebody, I think the worst thing I have tried was actually flying a drone. And I'm a certified drone pilot as well. I oh, fly. Really? You yeah. skipped over that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, I'm a certified drone pilot. Yeah. yeah, so we're flying these big enterprise drones and they're like, you know, quite big. It's like a meter times a meter or more. Okay. Big. And... You, you, this, this can happen. You know, the drone loses its signal to the remote, mm -hmm. and you have this what is called a flyaway. And what happens is that the drones fly away. You cannot control it. You can't call it back. You can't kill it. You just have to look very patient and hope it stops. And it just goes until it runs out of and energy, that, right? 
or uh, or when it gets a connection to the c- controller again. Mm. I've tried that twice. Uh, the first time, my drone flew directly into a tree and landed on the road where a car potentially could have hit it. And oh, it's a wow. it's a six seven kilo drone. So if that car hit, actually hit that drone, it could actually end it really bad. Wow. And the second time, it was I was um, inspecting my father in law's roof uh, with a small drone. And then suddenly, my boyfriend was like, Nicole, you're super drunk. What are you doing with the drone? I was like, it's not really me doing that. <laughs> and that drone actually just flew away. We couldn't even see oh, it. Oh, so to be clear, you weren't drunk when you were flying. No, no, I wasn't okay. drunk. It was the drone doing weird stuff. So uh-huh. we could only follow it on the tablet and see what it was watching. And then suddenly it stopped. And then I could then I could control it and land it. But it, I think he had, it was like, 500 meters away from where we were, it landed. Wow. So you just lost link and then it didn't know what to do. And you're over a populated area because it's over where. This was actually on the countryside. So. Oh, this is back in, back in. Uh, No, this is actually here Here. because his family is here. So, uh, yeah, but both things happened on the, in the countryside. Yeah. That's fortunate. But, uh, it could easily have happened here in the city center as well. And it does, unfortunately, still happens to people that you lose connection with your drone. Good, good. Um, okay, so that's good. Most dangerous thing you've ever done. The, the, besides bazookas <laughs> and sniper uh, Christensen, uh-huh. I guess. Um, it was not dangerous because everything was fully under control. Oh, yeah. did you uh, hear that? <laughs> Not dangerous with a weapon because she's under control. She's precise. She's precise. No chaos. So the the other thing that I like to do is, um, unfortunately, I don't speak Danish mm. yet. I don't speak Danish yet. Maybe one day I'll speak Danish. But I would like to say, you know, kind of thank you to the people that we met today and those sort of things. Uh, but I can't. So mm-hmm. do you have anything that you would want to say to the people who maybe understand Danish, who are listening, who may want to hear something about how all the great things that are happening in Denmark. So what, what, what did you want me to say? I'm trying to get you to speak Danish. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, you know, if we have any Danish listeners, uh, I think the best thing will be like, tak fordi I lyttede med i dag, og vi håber I lytter med til næste afsnit også. Okay. Can, Steven, can you translate that? No, first? but hopefully she didn't say anything bad. <laughs> I heard the first one was tak, right? That's like, thank you. Or something I actually here. just told their Berlin story. No, no, no. I actually said uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you will listen to the next episode as well. Oh, that's okay, great. 